Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Tulsa Opera will celebrate its 75th anniversary this Saturday with a gala anniversary concert, a concert performance of Giuseppe Verdi's Aida, the story of an enslaved Ethiopian princess who is in love with the captain of her Egyptian captors, Radames. Radames returns her affections but is betrothed to the Egyptian princess Amneris. If Radames marries her, great powers is at his fingertips. Or will he opt for love? Well, it's opera, so we know which choice he's going to make. That's the synopsis in a nutshell amidst the spectacle of one of the grandest grand operas. Noted Verdi soprano Michelle Bradley sings the title role. Grammy winner Michelle DeYoung sings Amneris. And Lemmy Pullian, my guest today, sings Rodemaze, who's fresh from a Metropolitan Opera debut and role review as Rodemaze back in December. And he made his Carnegie Hall de- debut in January. And Pulliam's story is equally compelling. He gave up singing for over a decade. As a talented young singer, he simply couldn't get auditions because he is a tall, large black man. Opera directors just wouldn't consider him for parts. But a last-minute ask to sing the national anthem led him to return to singing, and now his career is blossoming at the age of 47. He joins us today to talk about his career and singing Rodemaze for Tulsa Opera this Saturday. Lemmy Pulliam, welcome to Studio Tulsa. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so, so much for having me, Rich. I know we're all looking forward to hearing you sing uh, Radames uh, in the 75th anniversary gala of Tulsa Opera this coming weekend. Mm-hmm. But let me take you back a couple of months to another important version of Radames, and that was the evening December 17th uh, last year, 2022, as you stepped onto the stage of the Metropolitan Opera uh, for the first time. What was that experience like? Uh, it was absolutely a dream come true. It was something I dreamt of from uh, from the time I was about 16 years old. And to finally have it come to fruition was beyond my wildest dreams. And it's it's a night that I'll that I'll never forget, you know, to to have the opportunity to walk in walk the path that so many of the great singers who inspired me to want to sing opera have walked was just awe-inspiring for me to think of the people who have who, who had walked that path before me and uh to stand on that stage and to look out into that auditorium and to have the opportunity to stand in front of that iconic gold curtain was just more than anything i than i could have asked for now, you were covering the roles, uh, and there's always the possibility that you could go on, but a lot of times that yeah. doesn't happen. Uh, was it uh, pretty quick, or did you have some foreknowledge that you were going to be going on that night? What What was the circumstances? I had received a notice earlier in the day, in the early afternoon, that uh, there was a possibility that I would be going on that evening. Um, which I was very grateful for that notice because uh, they didn't want me to to be blindsided should it should it come up at the last minute. So I, um, you know, I I already treat any performance day, even if I'm just the cover, as if I'm going to have to sing. So I, you know, go about my daily regimen and made preparations to to be ready to sing that night should I have to, and about. I'm going to say somewhere around 2, 2.30 in the afternoon, I received the confirmation call that I would be singing that night. Well, I know it's also been the culmination of a very long story 
in your singing career, which has had some serious setbacks, uh, uh, not due to, to you, but to the circumstances of your life and, and, and who you are. And you top that off, the next month you make your Carnegie Hall debut with your alma mater, Oberlin. Yes, yes, that was uh, the end of 2020, uh, you know, the, the 2022 going into 2023 was a, a big time for me to go from one iconic venue to another uh, in Carnegie Hall and to have the opportunity to do it with um, the orchestra and courses from Oberlin, which is where I attended school, and and to have the opportunity to have my family in attendance was made the night all the more special. Now you're here in Tulsa going to sing Radames again. Of course, it's an amazing vocal part. But what's interesting to you about the character of Radames as well? Well, I'm still in the process of forming my opinions about Radames because it's it's a new role for me. My debut at the Met was my house and role debut. Um, so I'd never sung it before. But it's, you know, as far as musically, it's one of those roles where you're just thrown into the deep end. Um, you don't have very much time to warm up. Right. You come out on stage, sing two lines, and then you have to sing one of the most difficult arias uh, written for the tenor voice. So no, no pressure there. <laughs> um, but it's the the role itself is 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 one I you know because you deal with the you have the, the love triangle of Amneris and her interest in Radames, but Radames is more interested in Aida, and to the point where he uh, is willing to betray his own people in order to help her and her, her father escape. And so it's, it's, it's a tough role. It's, I think the difficult, the most difficult part about for me was not letting for me, not allowing that the fact that in my debut, that I was also the first black singer in the Met history to sing that role to not allow that to come into into play and kind of uh, put too much pressure on myself, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a role that I hope that I will continue to sing for many, many, many years. And uh, I'm looking forward to if you have an opportunity to do it in Tulsa. You bring up a, a sort of an important part of in opera's history. Most of the time this has been sung by a white man who darkens his face to portray the captain of the Egyptian army. And uh, it sounds like that adds some pressure to how you approach the role dramatically. And let's face it, the role itself is vocally difficult enough by itself without that additional baggage. Is that fair to say? Well, yes, and and, and I don't think we've had... You know, um, the Rotorola Maze is one that I, that not necessarily the tenors are darkening themselves to sing it. That's more roles like Otello uh, or, yeah. you know, Manastados and, you know, roles of that nature. But the role of, you know, typically, I think audiences tend to forget that everyone, every character in that opera is, is, is African um, because the Egyptians are usually cast as as you know they're usually white singers the ethiopians are often the black singers um and some of them often even appear in uh, chains or ropes or yes. things of that nature um 
because they're, they're captives yeah. audiences have become kind of you know audiences have gotten to the point where i think they've they've almost forgotten that that all of the characters are are african not just the aida and and the and her her tribes and tribesmen but you know the king amneris radames all of them are are african singers or african characters of course, vocally, there's some amazing singing you get to do with Aida, with Amneris, I believe, as well. But, of course, you also have one of the great tenor arias in the repertoire, and that's Celeste Aida. Tell me about singing Celeste that. Aida is one of those arias to where, you know, for me personally, it's kind of when you start it, you, you say a little prayer <laughs> and then just, just go with the flow. Um, because it, it's it's extremely difficult to sing, just musically, because it requires such uh, a long legato line, and it requires you to be able to sing seamlessly from the top through the middle all the way to the top of your range, from the bottom to the middle to the top. So it's it's a very difficult aria, and the fact that you have to do it almost immediately, uh, <laughs> within the first five minutes of being on stage, you're you're delving into this aria. Uh, you have basically two lines to sing prior to it, and uh, that's all of the warm-up you get. So, you know, having sung this role now one time, I completely understand now, or I understand better, how um, when I would watch as a young singer, I saw interviews with Luciano Pavarotti, who would talk about how he would take extra time to warm up and he would typically like to sing the aria maybe once or twice before going on stage for the performance uh, to ensure that he's properly warmed up. And, uh, you know, I think that going forward, that that, that will probably be uh, something that I will adopt as well. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting, you know, because you sing that right off the bat, but man, you're singing for four acts. I mean, this is, this is, uh, yeah. I mean, it goes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really goes. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, and you think it, when the singing can't get any more difficult and and it's it's just, you know, you have the, the moving duets with, with Amneris um, and then you have that uh, the extremely moving final scene, the tomb scene with Aida as, as you have been sentenced to to die in a tomb, to basically be buried alive in a tomb only to find that Aida has been hiding there waiting for you and... Uh, and that you two will get to spend your last moments together singing and to get a chance to sing that those final lines are to me, some of the most beautiful, beautiful music uh, in all of opera. My guest today is Libby Pulliam. He is an opera tenor who uh, will be singing the role of Radames as Tulsa opera celebrates its 75th anniversary with an anniversary gala staged a concert version of Verdi's Aida Saturday evening at the Tulsa Performing Arts Center, and he's my guest today on Studio Tulsa. Well, let's hear a little music from Aida, that fiendishly difficult aria that you were talking about, Celeste Aida. Here's music from Aida here on Studio Tulsa.
That's music from Aida, which will be sung by my guest today, Lemmy Pulliam, who will sing Radames in Tulsa Opera's 75th anniversary gala production of a concert version of Verdi's Aida at the Tulsa Performing Arts Center. I have to ask you, today, as we speak, which is a, a Friday uh, of February 17th, you're blowing up on social media because uh, um, Michelle Obama has, has mentioned you today. <laughs> And I have to say, yeah, I was, uh, this is another part of this musical arc that I was referring to earlier, which has been a rocky road at times, to say the least. Uh, you know, I have to say, and you're very well aware of it, and you've spoken eloquently about this, you've experienced a discrimination that has all too often been casually dismissed for decades. And you're a large yes. man. And in many mm-hmm. musical fields, that would mean nothing. If you were singing in popular large, music, man. <laughs> a large handsome man, yes, indeed. But but in most musical fields, that would mean nothing. But in dramatic singing, especially in opera, musical theater, that is still very much looked down upon. And it was especially at that time, at the time you were beginning your professional career, I, I heard all sorts yes, of operatic directors saying, we have to have realism in opera. You can't, yes. you, you know... Yeah. A large woman or a large man uh, professing love for one another is just not realistic, which is ridiculous. I had an opera director say that to me once, and to my everlasting shame, I didn't push back on that, I have to say. But that was very much... Well, it was difficult for anybody during that time to really push back for fear of, you know, of a possible retribution or being uh, blacklisted or labeled as being difficult. You know, so many opera companies and so many productions and were more willing to put a fat suit on a skinny singer <laughs> as opposed to hiring a singer of size to portray the role. Yeah. And, you know, it was and, and that still goes on today, unfortunately. And, you know, that to me is akin to, you know, the use of blackface. And, you know, as in, you know, as it used to be during, you know, during vaudeville and different areas to create this caricature of of black people, you know, they're they're more willing to create a caricature of a, of a person of size by, you know, dressing them up in a, in a fat suit and uh, a funny looking costume as opposed to, you know, hiring a singer of size and allowing them to perform and 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 be seen uh, with the dignity that they deserve. And uh, I know you tell stories of uh, casting folks saying, lose 50 pounds and we'll talk to you. Yeah, I've been refused live auditions with companies just with those words. You know, we love your voice, but contact us when you lose 50 pounds, mm-hmm. then we'll give you a live audition. You know, I, I reject that premise that, you know, only attractive people fall in love, that people want to know only about and what is attractive anyway. That's a premise to reject as well. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, the, the more interesting premise is that we need realism in opera. 
<laughs> the most well, <laughs> uniquely unrealistic genre includes, includes people of size. The representation matters um, because audiences, I think audiences, whether it's a person of size, whether it's a person of color, whether it's someone from you know the LGBTQ community, representation matters. And nothing, I think, helps grow our audiences more than allowing them to see people who look like them on stage. I can't tell you how often I receive messages from, from young singers, aspiring singers, who, who may have weight issues or other issues that they're dealing with. And those messages are very encouraging to me to help me keep pushing forward despite the, the negativity I may run up against. Um, because if I can, you know, I'm walking in the footsteps of the greats that have come before me. And my goal is to not only walk in those footsteps, but maybe create a few new footsteps for somebody else to walk in and to make their path um, just a bit easier than mine was. Well, at some point it was overwhelming. You gave up singing for what, a better part of... More, more than a decade, almost 12, a little over 12 years. Wow. Did you just say, okay, this is not for me? Uh, I'm not, and I'm not going to pursue another type of singing. I'm just giving up music. Was it, was it that profound? It was, it was one of those things where I had made myself a promise that if ever I'm doing something that I no longer enjoy, I'll do something else. Mm. And unfortunately, I just lost the drive and the desire to pursue a career in classical music um, because of the negativity and the, you know, the, the unfair rejections that I had received um, strictly because I didn't fit uh, their, their physical, the physical attributes that they were looking for. You know, I was constantly praised for my voice, um, but constantly, uh, denigrated because of my body but the body is the instrument that creates the voice that they love so much and you can't separate one from the other you know from a mental health standpoint that was probably you know that was probably the best way to go at that particular time rather than it, it really was it yeah. really was you know i when i first started singing and again you know i realized how much the industry had changed in in many ways for the good and, but there were still the difficulties to be faced, but it was more of, um, you know, I was able to look back on that time as, as a blessing for me, um, because it allowed me to experience life more fully and to learn to love myself, um, more fully. Whereas before, you know, I may walk into a room for an audition, but not necessarily walk in as confidently as I should, because I knew that at some point my body size would become part of this, of the discussion. Yeah. Whereas now I tend to approach the subject on my own terms. Um, I no longer wait for people to bring it up. You know, I, I, I will bring it up first. If this is going to be an issue, let's discuss it now. So as not to waste either of our time. Mm -hmm. um, so I walk into the room as confidently as I can, knowing that I belong there. And uh, that despite what, what, what others may think, this is my stage. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm going to keep 
keep working to do it as long as I can. Yeah. Well, when you returned to singing, it was uh, last minute. I asked to sing the Star Spangled Banner at an Obama campaign event where you were working, uh, working, I guess, uh, on the campaign. At, as a field some, organizer. Yeah, mm -hmm. field organizer. And you said when yeah, you finally, you know, you sang the song, which of course is not that easy if you haven't sung, you know, for 10 years. Uh, but you said, you said, I heard something different in my voice. There was like a, a burnished sound to it. What was different? I've, I had grown up, <laughs> you know, in, in, in that decade, I, you know, I, I grew up and the voice um, had matured and, and taken on, a, as, a, as you said, a more burnished quality that really piqued my interest as to what, what I might be capable of vocally at that time. Um, so after the, the, you know, singing of the national anthem at the local event, and then again at one of our staff retreats, I began to work on my own privately, just kind of in my room, bedroom, on my own studying, doing my vocal exercises and using my lesson tapes for my days of college to kind of see where, you know, where this voice was going, what it's capable of. And, and, uh, I discovered that it was much more interesting than I remembered. <laughs> and it was, it made singing fun again. Even though I was just doing it for myself at the time, singing became fun. And I began to, to reignite that passion that I had. And uh, so I eventually found a voice teacher and studied with her for uh, several years until she finally said, you know, I'm going to have to push you out of the nest at this point because all you're doing is taking voice lessons. I need you to get out and do something with the voice. And uh, so and I started doing that, and, uh, and the rest is history. You know, it's interesting. I'm a wind musician myself, and I laid off about a year during the pandemic, and it has taken so much time and effort to get back to where I was. Yes. Is it is it was it the same for you with the voice? I mean, I, it, obviously it, it you're was. using your it, voice, but you're it using was, it differently you know, to to do the exercises and whatnot to rebuild the the stamina one needs to 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 sing a full opera and to you know working on building um, this even quality throughout the entire voice from the low range, middle range up to the top. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. You know, many people who aren't necessarily trained singers or trained musicians in general, um, I think they, they really have no understanding of how much work goes into what we do as musicians. Um, I think many of them may think that, you know, you pull your instrument out of the case and just start <laughs> playing. Or I'd stand up and open my mouth and just start singing. No, there are hundreds if not thousands of hours of work that go into preparing for any performances we may have. Yeah. And, and at the heart, they're muscles. <laughs> and just like yes. any athletes, if you don't use the muscles, you can't do what you used to do. Yeah. No. Exactly. No. And as far as singers go, all we depend on are these two little pieces of, you know, for no better term of gristle in our throats. <laughs> Um, that are helping, uh, that are creating the sound. So, you know, we have 
we don't have the luxury of, say, instrumentalists to put our instrument away in a case for safekeeping. So, you know, that's why I think a lot of uh, some people may think singers, operatic singers are a little uh, extravagant in a way or a little fussy when it comes to their voices. But, you know, in a way we have to be because everything we do affects our voice. Um, we use our voice on a daily basis to communicate. Um, so everywhere we go, the atmosphere in those rooms affect our voices. Um, you know, whether it's too much dust or we get a puff of pollen, you know, from flowers or something, everything affects what we do. Well, uh, it sounds like things are going as good as can be. Now, you, 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 uh, as you mentioned, you said this is my first Radames, uh, in back in December, your second Radames here in Tulsa. You're singing mm -hmm. Dick Johnson with Cleveland Orchestra in uh, Puccini's La Fanchula. Uh, Yes. What What are you at work now on? Is is growing the number of roles that you have under your belt, or or just trying working to get performances in the ones that that you do have? Well, we're constantly working to expand the repertoire we sing. Um, I'm I'm constantly, um, you know, with my with my team, kind of assigning roles that might be of interest that uh, that we can start working on that may. Be, be something that we can perform in the future. You know, like uh, the, the Dick Johnson Panchula and Panchula is also a new role for me. So I'm in the process of learning that one. Um, I'm also a big fan of, of, of recitals. Mm. So I love to, to concertize um, with art songs and, and, and uh, Negro spirituals. I'm, I'm currently doing uh, several recitals um, that, feature and all the program is entirely made up of Negro spirituals. Mm. Um, and it's a program entitled make them hear you, uh, a spiritual journey, um, which I'm extremely excited about. And, uh, hopefully we'll have the opportunity to, to share that more widely in in the coming weeks and, uh, months. Well, we're looking forward to hearing you sing, uh, Aida, uh, for Tulsa opera, Lemmy Pulliam. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Rich. Operatic tenor Lemmy Pulliam speaking with us here on Studio Tulsa. He'll sing the role of Radames in Giuseppe Verdi's Aida, which Tulsa Opera will present in a concert version for their 75th anniversary gala concert. That concert takes place Saturday evening at 7.30 at the Tulsa Performing Arts Center's Chapman Music Hall. For information on the concert and tickets, visit TulsaOpera.com. Well, we're going to leave you with a little more music. From Aida, here's the famous Grand March from Act Two. Studio Tulsa is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. I'm Rich Fisher. Thanks for listening.
The University of Tulsa Department of English presents the documentary poetry series, which continues with poet Nomi Stone, whose writing is born at the crossroads of her two fields of expertise, poetry and anthropology. Her poetry book, Kill Class, and her scholarly text, Pinelandia, stems from her field research across the United States and the Middle East. She'll be speaking Tuesday evening, February 28th at 7 o'clock at Terrell Hall on the University of Tulsa campus. The lecture is free and open to the public.